This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. This is, uh, this setting is reminding me a lot of Africa, uh, where I uh, have preached many times. Uh, outside in uh, different kinds of settings so uh, and I, it's a pleasant memory so I'm, I'm glad to be with you uh, for those of you who don't know me most of you probably don't I'm an evangelist with the Rio Grande Presbytery and I lead uh, in particular two ministries one uh, is in Las Cruces or in Doñana County uh, which is a, a diaconal ministry working with uh, families um, the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan, and in particular the inmate and the alien. The second ministry is down in El Paso uh, where our presbytery has uh, a work among uh, the immigrants who are uh, stuck in Juarez, many of them, thousands of them, uh, in very bad shape. So um, I come to you then from that perspective, but also uh, this morning, I, I want to share with you something that's been long on my mind, long in my heart. Uh, and it's something that's percolated over the years. It has grown in my study and in my thinking. Uh, and I think it's a really important message uh, for you as a Christian. And it's the question, uh, or it's the issue of the heart, the gift of your heart that God has given you. I want to talk to you about that this morning. Now, uh, I've been told this is a, kind of a deep sermon. So if you're a note taker, uh, this might be one of those times when you want to take some notes uh, so you don't get lost. Uh, and I'll try hard not to lose you, uh, but uh, you, you are going to have to pay attention because uh, uh, things kind of move along, uh, hopefully in a, a good logical fashion. Uh, but hang in there with me, would you? Uh, I think uh, C.S. Lewis uh, captures this notion of the heart really beautifully in The Last Battle. How many of you are Narnia fans? Okay, about half of you. Uh, Narnia is a wonderful uh, tale uh, told by C.S. Lewis of uh, young youngsters who enter another land, and there they meet uh, this character who is very much like the Son of Man. Uh, and... Uh, and they, uh, they have a lot of adventures. Well, it culminates in a great battle. And at the end of the battle, uh, they are uh, looking at... Uh, the, the battle is over, and they're looking at the far country, that country where we're all going, where Reepcheep uh, uh, pointed his nose to and went and swam until he could swim no longer, until he entered that far country. They're looking at the far country, and they realize that the far country and this country are the same country. It's an amazing moment. And Aslan, who is uh, at that moment transformed, he's no longer a lion, uh, but rather looks like, to, like the son of man, uh, turns to them and says, You do not look so happy as I mean you to be. And Lucy said... We're so afraid of being sent away again. Aslan, you have always sent us back into our old world. No fear of that, Aslan said softly. 
Have you not guessed? And their hearts leapt with a wild hope within them. There was a railway accident, Aslan said. Your father and mother and all of you, as you used to call it in the, uh, in the Shadowlands, are dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. The ruler of this, uh, Jesus in the upper room, makes this same kind of a point when he says the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no power over me. In John 14 there, Jesus is setting before his disciples, you and me, this dream that is ours of the end, the telos that is ours, the goal, where we're headed. It's ours. And of course, that's the resurrection of the body and the reuniting of our soul and the entry into the new earth. The far country and this country are the same country. (laughs) And Jesus says to his disciples there, I've overcome the assassin of our dream, the one who is always coming to take away our dream, the one who doesn't want us to dream it any longer. I've overcome him. He has no power over me. He has no power over all who are united to him either. That our hope, that hope is assured to us by the fact of a new heart. You have a new heart. So my text this morning is just really simple. Uh, Maybe, or I'm sure you've read it many times, and certainly you've heard it throughout your life. What's the most important commandment? Jesus answered, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Let's pray. Lord, uh, as we uh, think about this heart which you have given us, this incredible gift that brings us joy and life, I pray that you would instruct us by your spirit, that you would guide our thinking, that you would move our desires toward you, and that you would strengthen us for the work at hand. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The heart within us leaps within us to give understanding of faith and hope and, and strength. So David prays in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And Ezekiel says in, 11, in chapter eleven nineteen, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I was talking with a young man, Dr. Joshua Moon. Most of you have probably never heard of him, but he grew up at University Presbyterian Church in Las Cruces. And I've had the pleasure of knowing him since he was a a lad, a mere lad went off to Covenant College and then to Covenant Seminary and then on to uh, Aberdeen where he got his doctorate in the book of Jeremiah studying the question of the new heart which Jeremiah declares 
The day is coming when you will have a new heart. So I called him up and I said, Josh, your thesis is that we do not have a divided heart. We do not have two hearts. But as Ezekiel says, we have one heart. My question then is, why does one set of verses like Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, who can understand it? Or Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Why does the second set of verses seem to contradict the first set of verses? And Dr. Moon's answer was, well, John, it's really pretty simple. The second set of verses you mentioned refer to the old covenant with its laws, duties, and judgments. It refers to the people who are in the old covenant, and that is the people of unbelief. Their hearts are hardened in rebellion, so they lack wisdom and they lack the life that gives life. That unbelieving heart is the generator of sin. But the first set refers to the new covenant people, changed by virtue of their faith, resulting in their union with Jesus Christ. They have a new heart of wisdom and life that gives life. This new heart is the generator of holiness. Write that down and don't forget it. The generator of holiness. Joshua went on to say, Josh Moon went on to say that this was St. Augustine's view, but it was discarded by the church early on, and, and Jeremias was followed. And we have followed Jeremias to this day. Jeremias thought that we have two hearts that are still active. Some Puritans also thought that we have a divided heart. When we start talking about the heart, People, uh, I, I'm amazed over the years, you know, I start talking about the heart and they throw up their hands and get confused and they say, oh, it's just a metaphor for everything. Well, it is true enough that you are to love God with all that you are and that that is definitely in the command to love God with everything that you possess, everything that you are. That's true. But it doesn't really solve the problem for us. It doesn't speak to the issue of how we live, how life produces life within us. How does the heart function? That's the question. How does our new heart function? To make all this possible. Because you see, with an unbelieving heart, a hardened heart, a stony heart, it's impossible to love God. So, let's pause for a moment and define, define heart. The heart is the spiritual inner most central, most center, the, the innermost center of the natural condition of mankind. What God created. It's the center So God created it to be the center of bodily life, bios. It's a pump. 
that keeps every part of the body fed and healthy. You know, all the years I've heard people say, oh, you know, it's not, we're not talking about this. Well, yes, we are. There are studies that show that there are tissues, I just heard this this morning, tissues in the heart, they're the same as the tissues in your brain. <laughs> who, who could have imagined that the Creator would have such wisdom? Your heart, uh, it, it, it's in your body. Uh, where it's, it's the heart that keeps pumping and feeding. Uh, it, it brings perception and feeling and strength arises. Paul acknowledges this, speaking of God's witness of himself, when he says, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. I, I read a recent study about the stomach which uh, the point of the study was that the stomach is the source of your depression or part of the source of your depression. Uh, Well, that's interesting. But then your heart is also the forming focus of your soul. The soul is your essential you, the, the essence of your being, the part of you that never dies. Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, Your law is in my heart. It's your heart that focuses your soul, mind, your thinking, soul, uh, desire, emotions, and your will, choices. Your heart is the reservoir of your suhe, your soul life. But now listen, write this one down. Your soul is not your heart. Your soul and your heart are two different things and they're never confused in the scripture. They're never crossed over. Your soul is not your heart. Your heart is the reservoir of your soul. It is feeding your soul. Your spiritual life that is within you is feeding you in your essential parts of you. The two are never confused because your heart is the spiritual foundation of your intuition, your worship, and your conscience. Your heart is the overkeeper, the vital center of zoe, eternal life, the life that gives life and which is not in you but is given to you as a gift when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. We are body and soul, and God gave us a spiritual power that is indispensable and the essential ruler over our entire life. It's the affection of body and soul. It's the spiritual center that affects your thinking and knowing, your desires and your passions, your will and your choices. It's the focusing, clarifying, motivating, and strengthening power of the new creature in Christ. You are a new creature in Christ. You all believe that. But you don't know what it is. You don't know what that power is. You don't claim that power for yourself. So it's crucial and vital to your life, be us. To your life, suhe. To your life, zoe, eternal life, the life that gives life. For you to realize that you have a new heart. This is the key point of the Sermon on the Mount, I believe. Jesus is preaching to an old covenant people in their unbelief. They're caught up in the laws. 
They're caught up in the chaos of sin. They're caught up in their ethnicity. They're, they're religious leaders. They're very religious. Uh, they, they, they're good people, the kind of people that you want to be around. He's speaking to them. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Or let me put it real simply. Jesus is saying to an old covenant people, you need a new heart. Paul grasped the, uh, the, the, the enormity of this prophecy uh, uh, that uh, is fleshed out for us in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. And why the prophet, uh, in the context of uh, Ezekiel 36, says, why will you die in your unbelief? He's talking to, you know, people who have the promise. Talking to people who, who have been given uh, the, the knowledge, the information. Why will you die in your unbelief? You need a new heart. Your hearts are full of poisonous thinking, idolatrous worship, a sewer of bad choices. Yes, but the day is coming. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Those aren't ifs. Those are facts declared by the prophet of God, by God himself to us. Holy Spirit regenerates our heart so that your heart renews your mind, restores your desire revives your strength. Brothers and sisters, by your faith in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of this new covenant promise is yours. You're in possession of it. You have received his heart. It's that, that heart of Adam has been replaced. And you have the heart of Jesus. Now that's astounding. That's astounding. That's awesome. If we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Not, you know, if, when. You shall be saved. You were crucified with Christ, buried with him in baptism, and you have been raised with him. In Christ, you possess the new heart of the Son of Man. So this is how your spiritual heart uh, functions in a fallen body and soul. So now we're now, that's the end of my definition of the heart. Now let's talk about the three ways that this functions. There's more ways, but this, these are three essential aspects of how this heart functions within you. Number one, it is with this heart we see God and know him. Not in this knowledge about God. We know him. We call him Abba Father. For we now know that we are his. We are his adopted son and daughter. We set our mind on things above where Christ is seated because we now know our Savior Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and he knows my name. He knows my name. 
I don't even know my full name yet. I'm going to find that out when I get with him. But he knows it already. We discover our new identity. Our identity. Do you hear that? It's not defined by this world. It's not defined by your experiences. It's not defined by your ethnicity. It's not defined by any of these things that we so commonly grab onto. It's defined by Jesus. Your identity in your baptism is the seal of Christ's witness that you belong to Him. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And that is why... It is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has, put, who has also put his seal on us, giving us his spirit in our hearts as the guarantee. Paul to the second Corinthians. His law is now written on our hearts. And we recognize sin and wickedness for what it is. Disobedience to the word of God. To his promise. To his law. In the believer, wisdom becomes clear and grows even when all else fails. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding. It makes itself known even in the midst of fools. Proverbs 14 verse 33. So we know God, and we are known by him. He searches our hearts, Paul says to the Ephesians, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, so to, uh, to reach all the, sorry, hang on, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, mystery now revealed in Christ, no longer a mystery, which is Christ in you, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When you know that Jesus knows you and loves you, then you realize that your shame has been covered and that you're clothed like Peter was at the Sea of Galilee. You remember the story. He denies Jesus three times. Or or go back into the upper room. Jesus comes to wash, wash his feet and he says, no, you can't wash my feet. And he says, well, uh, if, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Well, then wash me all over. No, Peter, you are clean. Tells Peter, you are clean. You just need the dust of this world washed off your feet. Then, then you go to the garden, and Peter denies him. And, and, and when the crow cries, but he's there the first day of resurrection. He doesn't, he doesn't run away. He's there, and Jesus says, I'll meet you in Galilee. So they come to Galilee, uh, and the, there's seven of them. I, I think John actually uses a, 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 a figure, uh, you know, a, a completion figure. Seven is a, is a perfect n- a number. And there's seven of the disciples there, and they go out fishing. And they fish all night, and they catch no fish. And then the stranger on the shore says, fish, drop your nets on the other side. They drop the nets on the other side, and they pick up a whole, you know, more fish than fills the whole boat, and so on. And John says, it's the Lord. And Peter, he's stripped down for fishing, takes his coat and wraps it around him. And he swims in. Now, if you're a sailor or a boatman or a fisherman, 
and you're going to jump in the water and swim 100 yards. You're not going to put a big, heavy coat around you. This is a small detail that John puts in there, and I have pondered it for years, but I, I think I understand it. This is a picture of Peter being reclothed, and he will not stand before the Lord naked, stripped down. He puts his coat around him, and he gets there. And then we have a picture of Jesus reclothing and what it actually looks like. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Look, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you agape, changes the word. Jesus changes the word. Do you agape, that's love, agape. That's love that you don't have and that I don't have. That's a love that's given to me. It's a divine love. It comes as part of my heart. Do you agape me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You gave me the very means to be able to love you. Now he's clothed. His shame is covered. He's been restored. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's what your heart is assuring you of every single day. Number two. It's by this pure heart that we walk in holiness and pursue godliness. You see, I say, preacher, uh, you guys go out and pursue godliness. And you go, oh, yeah, we'll do that. You don't believe it. You don't believe that we pursue godliness. You, you, you think it's, it has to do with uh, maybe a, a standard that you've set up on, on your own. You know, if I do these five things, then God will be happy with me. No, godliness is becoming like God. It's pursuing him. And that's what your new heart is doing in you. Every single day of your life. Worship becomes your way of life. It's the work that he prepared for us to do. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you believe it? Through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promise very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Holiness defines all of our efforts and labors. You, Peter says, in, uh, in, the, in 1 Peter, he says, you are holy as God is holy. Now, we keep translating this in Old English. You be holy. Uh, as God be holy, you know. But remember, it's Old English. To, the, the verb to be means you are. You is. Tu estás. No. Better. Tu soy. Yo soy. <laughs> okay. And Paul tells us in Romans 5, he says, we live to please our Father and hope does not put us to shame because God loves, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
you have and I have the desire of the Son of Man and that rules our thinking and our emotions. The Holy Spirit is his guide to our work. So above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Our heart can be overwhelmed. It's true. I can ignore my heart. That happens because of the sin that infects the flesh. But even when we fall into sin or return to old habits, our heart remains true and convicts us of the guilt of our actions. David's prayer in Psalm 51, I think, is his heart crying out to him, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. He believes the promise. In our new hearts, we find the joy of our labors. You may find it in your teaching. You may find it in your parenting. You may find it in your plumbing. You may find it uh, in your, uh, 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 your engineering. I mean, I found it on the farm in the Sea of Valley. There in the midst of my work on that farm, the Lord Jesus Christ made his presence known to me. And he'll make his presence known to you. It was in the liturgy of the worship service. That's why Presbyterians uh, talk a lot about and are concerned about liturgy. We want the shape of our worship to look like the gospel. We want it to move toward Jesus. We want it to reflect him. We want to engage him as he has come to engage us. It's there we experience life, the life that gives life. The pure heart brings all of life together. And that means in the midst of suffering. That means in the moments of sacrifice. That means in the moments of terror. We delight in him. It's our hearts that hold us in those terrible, difficult moments. Number three, it's the new heart of faith that acknowledges the imputed righteousness and the justice and mercy of our king. Without a new heart, you do not acknowledge those things. At the cross, our now regenerate hearts are filled with the love for Jesus. We recognize our sinfulness. We recognize our judgment and deserving of death. We see our righteous substitute take our place at the cross Take our sin upon himself, our judgment upon himself in a horrid separation from the Father and die in ignominy. There we hear him cry, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And we realize that a great exchange has taken place. Our sin has been imputed to him and his righteous clothing has been given to us as a gift, imputed to us as a gift to his bride. And then we understand the final word. It's finished. The judgment is past. My sin, all of my sin, even the sins I commit a year from now, right up to the day he returns, all of my sin is forgiven. 
paid for in full by the blood of Jesus Christ, sprinkled on the mercy seat, covering my shame. His guilt, his taking of my guilt, satisfied the justice of a holy God. It's finished. His imputation of righteousness has declared us justified before the judge of all mankind forever by upholding God's truth, holiness, and righteousness. There it is. It's all in your heart. There's his heart. And that's the moment when you realize you will never be more righteous than you are the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You'll never be more righteous than you are right at this moment if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. It's astounding. That's shocking. And it's true. Because that's the good news. In our hearts, we know we died there with him. And that we were raised with him to eternal life. Sin no longer has mastery over us. Oh yeah, you may still be struggling with sin. You are. Of course you are. So am I but it doesn't have mastery. Sin is not your master, Paul says in Romans 6. It doesn't identify you. Your sin does not identify you. I'm not an... Oh, hi, my name's John. I'm an alcoholic. No! My name is John. I'm a member of Jesus Christ's body. I belong to Jesus Christ. I struggle with a little bit of drinking too much. And maybe I overdo it. And maybe I'm an addict. But I know that God will deliver me. It has no mastery over me. The law of liberty, James says, is our strength and our comfort. James is making the point that we have been set free. You're no longer defined by this world. You're defined by Christ. And your new heart is bearing witness to that. This is a new beginning, a new record conscience washed clean, sin's power destroyed, and the ability to choose what is right in God's sight is now within you. Our strength in the, in the gift of righteousness grows in body and soul and we become more and more like Him. So let me summarize. Our heart renews our mind, restores our desire, revives our strength. Our heart activates our intuition, motivates us in our desires, directs us by his word in our conscience. These are the functions of the heart as God created them to be. Our heart is the incubator of holiness. We are new creatures in all of that. Now, there are two as I come to my end here. I want to make a couple of applications. Brief. The first one comes from the Puritan John Flavel. I think he captures it when he says, if the keeping of the heart be so important to business, if such great advantages result from it, if so many valuable interests be wrapped up in it, then let me call upon the people of God everywhere to engage heartily in this work. Study your hearts. Watch your hearts. Keep your hearts. That was a watchword among the, the Puritans. Watch your heart. Listen to your heart. Learn your heart. 
The Christian who forgets his heart or the Christian who ignores his heart will live in the grip of sensuality. You'll be caught up in the latest political movement. You'll be caught up in the, in the latest sexual identity crisis. You'll be caught up in all the things uh, that come uh, at us day after day over our television sets and from each other. You'll be caught up in those things. The natural life force which God created continues to work. The soul and the body continue to work with the patterns and habits and passions of the old zombie heart which is gone does not exist but has left its mark of death that dead heart was the incubator of sin the spirit of this world the spirit of the great liar and the spirit of our own personal tendencies traditions and habits can overwhelm our new heart. The Christian who is trusting only in, in his mind, in his thinking, in his emotions. I'm not saying emotions are bad. God created them. And he created them to direct us to our hearts. Our heart uses the emotion to point out to us the warning of what's happening. So if you're angry, it's because you're out of control or somebody else is out of control and authority is being tested. And, and, and your heart is screaming at you at that moment. Trust the one who has authority and showing you how to do that. No, I'm not saying emotion, any of these things are bad. I'm just saying that you're caught up in them and by themselves, they lead to bad choices. They lose the dream. And they begin to, and you begin to think, I'm, you know, I'm the only one that's right about these things. And I'm really sincere in all that I do. But that's wood, hay, and stubble. And it will burn up at the judgment, even though you yourself may be saved. Brothers and sisters, you have this powerful gift. It's within you. It's the spiritual power of Jesus. That's what he said. He was sending his spirit to us. The promise is uh, of his Holy Spirit, the reality of living in the resurrection power. You live in the resurrection power, not in the power of this world. Trust your heart and live by it. Don't walk in the flesh when you can put on the spirit. Study your heart to get the focus and purpose of your life clear. That will put to death the struggle and will give you joy in your relationship with Jesus and with your brothers and sisters. Now, the second application follows the first one, and I'll just mention it. The new heart is what keeps you from taking one side over against the other. So you heard this morning in our time of prayer that you have this group over here versus this group over here, and they've politicized something uh, that should... Uh, should never have been politicized. But that's happening all around us. Take this side against this side. Just, everything's made this, this diode kind of thing. You know, It's this against this, or it's this against this, and people are losing uh, their lives over it. That's the horrible aspect of it. But as a Christian, you, you, you seek Jesus for help, and, and, and you don't have to be troubled by all these little things that are happening. 
You don't have to take sides. I know that sounds like a heresy. You don't have to take sides. Everybody says you have to take a side, but no, you don't. You have to take Jesus' side. And in the midst of that, you speak his word. You speak God's command. Oh, you come to the end of the day and you realize I'm in the place of blessing, not of cursing, of mercy and justice. And you ask yourself, oh, my heart, where have I been today? What is my thinking? What matters of conscience have I been engaged in? Was I true to Jesus? Sisters and brothers, I hope you're hearing me at this moment. Actually, not me. I hope you're hearing him say at this moment, you do not look so happy as I mean you to be. The dream, the dream is ours, cannot be stolen from us. Even though assassins will come and try to take it, I have set you before you your telos, your end, and your heart affirms it to you. So let your heart leap with joy. That's, that, that hope is yours. Amen. This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. 